One thing you'll note if you've been around church very long, there's not a lot of churches that um, anymore really that go through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And because of that, you know, a lot of times you'll see sort of an avoidance of certain scriptures um, because it's not super fun. Like if you're gonna just pick and choose, you got the whole Bible to choose from, to pick a sermon from, there's a, there's a thousand verses and chapters people would choose probably over um, basically Ezekiel chapter 40 to the end is something you don't hear a lot of sermons from. Why? Well, because it's this guy walking around with a, measure, a measurement tool, a reed that he uses as a ruler, and he's measuring stuff. Lots of measurements. We called him measurement man. He's measurement man. On Wednesday night, he's running around measuring the temple. Well, which temple? Well, as it turns out, Ezekiel sees a vision of the millennial temple, and he gives us painful detail about the, the length of the, this wall and the height of that wall and where the palm trees go and like all the, all the details. And it's just kind of a long, long, tedious read. Some people say, yeah, why even go through that? And, and some churches even say, that's not, who cares about that? Because it's some temple that was built in Jerusalem. But actually it wasn't. It's a temple that has yet to be built. Um, and so some people say, well, if that's true, then whatever, they're gonna build it and they've got their blueprints there. Why would we ever wanna look at that? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is I don't wanna be a tourist when I'm in the millennial kingdom. You know, I don't wanna be a person, where are we now? And uh, you know, tour guide Barbie, uh, over here, we got this and over there. I'd rather, be, I'd rather be like an adventurer who knows what's going on. I wanna know what this temple's about. And when I get there in the millennial kingdom, I'm gonna say, I know why the, the priests have a little corner spot where they cook things up. And I know this is where there's a gate that goes this way and that way. And when you're supposed to go in that gate, when you're supposed to go out the other. Um, I wanna know this stuff uh, because I, I don't wanna be a tourist. I wanna be a tour guide in the millennial kingdom. But also there's another part, and this is what so many people miss. You know, the Bible says, you know, of Jesus, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, saith the Lord. Uh, every verse of every Bible uh, passage, I believe somehow points us to Jesus and teaches us deep truth. Now, whether we figured all that out or not, that's a whole nother story. We've got a lot of work to do. But in this little description of the temple, I think we're gonna see these little snapshots of truth that are helpful. And I wanna show you one such truth that some people might just kind of go, just another weird scripture about the temple in the millennial kingdom. But I wanna show you kind of how you can see truth applied in kind of a, a fun way. So it's Ezekiel chapter 46, and we'll start right there uh, in verse eight. Ezekiel 46. It says there, and when the prince shall enter, he shall go in by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go forth by the way thereof. But when the people of the Lord, or the people of the land shall come before the Lord in the solemn feast, he that entereth in by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And he that entereth by the way of the south gate shall go forth by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in, but shall go forth over against it. Here's the rule for the people in the millennium of how they come to worship into the Lord and into his presence there in the temple during the millennial kingdom. When they gather, they're supposed to go in one gate and go out the other. Again, Brett, this is why I don't like reading this part of the Bible. Like, who cares? But actually, it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of what happens when a person goes in 
to worship the Lord. What are they doing? Well, you know, one of the things you and I need to be cognizant of is when you come into God's presence, one of the things we want or we should want is to be changed, to transform into what God wants us to be. These people were to come in one way and go out the other. They weren't supposed to just kind of go in and out with no change or whatever. They come out, there's kind of a picture. Well, Brad, I don't know if I see that. Well, did you see the prince? The prince can go in the gate that he went in, but he can also go out the same gate that he came in. Why is that? Why would it be that the Messiah, Jesus, doesn't have to go through a different gate? I would argue that there's a point being made. Jesus doesn't need to change. He's perfect. He lacks for nothing. Uh, and so he can go whatever gate in and out he ever wants to because he's perfect. You and I, when we come into the presence of the Lord, the goal is to go in one way and come out the other. That's the goal of the believer. Change. God wants to change us. Change, it's so important. In fact, if you look up the word change in the dictionary, as it turns out, this, this uh, dictionary definition uh, is really helpful because it speaks to our lack of, of will to change in a lot of things. You know, the word change, it's to make the form, nature, content, future course of something different from what it is, or, and this is where it gets really interesting, or from what it would be if left alone. If you leave something alone, the natural progression, where does it go? Where does the gravity pull on any given thing? Well, as it turns out, um, the flow of gravity in life, we like to not change. We wanna just be who we are. And there's a whole movement right now. Um, it's amazing, even not just in the secular world, but even in the church, just be who you are. God likes you the way you are. And that sounds so smishy, gishy, lubby-dovey. Uh, I call it sloppy agape. Uh, it's where we, we say, oh, God is so loving. He just loves you the way you are. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a certain truth to that. But one of the things when you read the Bible, as it turns out, is God wants to change you and you are in a desperate, desperate need to change. And when you think that you don't need to change, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me, you also need to kind of have a clue. Because God says, I didn't save you to keep you the way you are. When he saves us as Christians, he wants to do a work in us and a massive change because we're flawed, we're weak, we're foolish, we're messed up. But the Lord says, I can fix that and I can change that and I've got a great plan to do that. See, in our world, the church is starting to jump into the saying, well, you know, just be the way you are and, and we're just good with that. Um, even on the things that the Bible says, no, that's not good. The church sadly is starting to say, no, it is good. Even though the Bible calls it bad, we're gonna call it good because we don't wanna ruffle people's feathers. We don't, we don't think change is really that important. Just be who you are, we'll call it good. But actually the Bible says no, change needs to happen. Remember the story of the guy who went into the doctor's office and he was very unhealthy. The doctor said, dude, you've got like 30 days to live. And the man's like, no way. Well, what do I need to do to, to, to make those changes so I can you know, live longer? He said, well, I don't know. But first of all, you, you gotta quit your job. And you know, you, you've gotta put your feet up and your wife needs to cook up special meals where, she, where you're eating really healthy certain kinds of foods and your wife has to do a little extra there and you can't help with the kids, you can't help around the house, you literally need to be still and, and, and eat healthy and you gotta quit your job. And the guy's like, oh man, how do I break this to my wife? Doc, can you call my wife and tell her this stuff? He's like, okay. 
So the guy goes home and he walks in the door and he's like, honey, uh, did, you, did the doctor call you? Oh yeah, dear, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, well, did he tell you what, what, what's gonna happen? He, and she said, yeah, you're gonna die in 30 days. <laughs> We're, we don't like change. We, we, some things just aren't worth it. <laughs> it's too hard. Um, but as it turns out, the Bible says, nope, the Lord is really into transformation, changing us. And so really let's break this down into some thoughts. First of all, the need for change. Um, even though the world says, no, be who you are, God will just come as you are, he'll take you as you are. Well, yeah, he will. He'll, he'll, he'll take a wretched, miserable sinner, but the goal is not to keep you as a wretched, miserable sinner. Um, people use this. Well, Jesus hung out with the publicans and the prostitutes and the, 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 the tax collectors and all the evil people. Yeah, but did you notice when they hung out with Jesus, they were all transformed. You know, the prostitutes were no longer prostituting. The tax collectors were no longer ripping everybody off. Um, they, they changed, they were transformed. The need for change. And it's really true, probably mostly in, in the, the first point of, of, of this is salvation in and of itself. Um, I love Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. You guys know this, but I love how this is a, a package deal, these verses here, because it talks about salvation and then what the Lord does once you're saved. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So I love this, how are you saved? Not by yourselves, you don't, you don't, you remember when some of your grandmas told you, hey, when you, hopefully your good outweighs your bad and you'll get to heaven if, you're, if your good outweighs your bad. Well, that's what she was taught, but that's biblically wrong. Because everybody that is weighed with that sort of you know, uh, premise, you're gonna end up, chink, the bad is gonna outweigh the good by far, according to the scripture. Your best works are like filthy rags, the Bible says. Yeah, and all have sinned and they fall short. That's the scale going, chink, you lose. But praise the Lord, we're not saved by good works. It says you're saved by God's grace through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. A gift is free. That's, what, that's how salvation happens. Well, Brett, James says faith without works is dead. James disagrees with Paul. No, Paul agrees, because what does he say? He says, now, you know, we're not saved by our works, anybody boasting about that, but we are, after we're saved, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So when you become a Christian, the Lord says, I wanna start working in you, uh, newness. And I wanna work in you good works and, and good things to change you, to transform you. And, and, and he wants us to walk in those good works. Um, you know, the key word there, the operative word in this Ephesians 2 passage is that great word, workmanship. Um, it's the Greek word poema, uh, which is the word poem in the Greek, poetic, poetry. But it also is the implication of a cre creation from a creator a creature that was, has been created. So it's not just a vase, uh, a work of art or something like that. It's actually um, Im implying the actual artisan who's making something beautiful. Uh, you say, well, Brett, you're getting into too much nuance there. Well, I think it does make a difference as it turns out. Um, the, the word there, you know, in, in some of your other translations is uh, it's not just workmanship. Um, some say handiwork, some of your translations. Others say maybe, um, what is it, um, uh, masterpiece, I think, uh, in some of your newer translations. 
But which one is it? Is it the Lord's masterpiece? You're his masterpiece or his handiwork? Well, the Greek word here, you know, poema is, is workmanship in the sense that workmanship refers to more than just the product of creation. But the word workmanship also refers to the degree of skill with which the product was made. It, it implies back to the creator, the artisan, and, and less about the actual object. Uh, the degree of skill imparted to the value it makes the thing valuable. Just like Hunter Biden's pictures, it's because of his, his, who he is that makes his pictures worth a million dollars. That's a little joke there for you polit political, my view. Uh, he's selling these pieces of art. Anyway, um, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. But, um, but uh, you know, if, you, if for example, you say that vase is of excellent workmanship, you're not only acknowledging that it's just a beautiful vase, you're acknowledging the one who made the vase itself. You know, um, and the value is deprived, derived from the talents of the one who made it. That's what this word workmanship means. God takes you and he, he does a work. And it's more about the, the worker who's doing it in you that gives you value. Um, it's he who is shaping and, and doing a work of art in your life. This is what the Lord says. I wanna do a work in you that is a, a work of art. And, it's, and for that to happen, it's gotta be change. Do you remember a few months ago when we were in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18, we saw the Lord take Jeremiah and go into the potter's shop. Remember that? And Jeremiah saw the clay and the wheel and the potter and the potter was making up stuff. And then the, the potter saw a flaw in the clay. So he squished it back down and he started making a new vessel. Remember that whole thing we saw? And then the Lord says, Jeremiah, don't I have the power over the clay? Just like the, the potter has power over the clay. I have power over Israel. I can shape you to be who I want you to be. Um, the Lord is an artisan. He's not just messing around with the clay. He's not just fiddling around with the Play-Doh. He's doing a work. He wrought a work on the wheel, the Bible says there. And that's what the Lord wants to do. He's doing a work. Now, all that means change. Um, you know, some of my favorite scriptures about how the Lord wants to change us. I like this one, 2 Corinthians you know, 3.18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's kind of a King James way of saying, when you look in the mirror, you are made in the image of God. That's what makes us different, by the way. You know, you'll hear biologists and History Channel and Discover Channel talk about how the animal, human, you know, or whatever. And uh, we're no different than animals. Uh, people like to make that a thing. But the Bible says, actually, the, the humans are different. And any knucklehead can tell that we're different. You know, the best thing, maybe a dolphin <laughs> after us. Like, like what, what, what are the smartest little creatures? Maybe your little, you know, golden retriever. That's about as close, as good as it gets. But, but human, humanity is different. And why? Bible tells us. We were created in the image of God. That's the difference. So by the way, it's very godless when, you know, these uh, people try to put us on the same level of animals and we're shocked when people act like animals. Uh, and we're like, but that's what we taught them in school. But we're actually different than the animals, as it turns out. Um, and it's because we were created in the image of God. Now, we're still sinners. And so what God says here is he wants to change us. He says, you are changed into the same image from glory to glory. You might even say better, from glory to even greater glory. When you become a believer in Christ and you become saved, God says, I, I wanna take that image that you were created in and I wanna improve and move you from glory to glory, even by the spirit of the Lord. 
That's change that God wants. Another scripture about change that we, we can look at, and by the way, there's hundreds of scriptures about this, but 1 Corinthians 13, 11 speaks of maturity. The Lord wants to change you to grow up. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. There's kind of a current trend in social media where young people, Z, Gen Zers, are saying, we don't wanna grow up. The funny thing is, is almost every generation had that notion. That's not a new thing. Uh, I call it the Peter Pan syndrome. You know, I just wanna be Peter, but, but it gets kind of goofy sometimes. Have you ever seen like the 35 year old guy skateboarding out there trying to be hip and cool? Uh, and it's a little bit embarrassing kind of, um, and that person doesn't recognize that it's embarrassing. Uh, the 35 year old kid sitting in the mom's basement playing video games and mooching off of her social security check. Like that's, that's painful. Time to grow up, Junior. Like it's time to, to, to become a man and move from childish things. Um, now I know as a young person, that doesn't sound very cool, but just wanna tell you, you're gonna get old no matter what you do. It's gonna happen. Just ask all the old people in here, we know. And we once thought we were never gonna get old, uh, but it happens uh, as it turns out. But as it turns out, the Lord also says, listen, when you're a believer, I don't want you staying as a little child. I want you to mature and I want you to change, grow in maturity. Now I'm gonna say something that might offend some of you, but oh well, here goes. Um, some of you are still breastfeeding. When you should be eating a ribeye steak. Oh, Brett, that's horrible, I hate that. You shouldn't say that. No, I didn't say it, the Bible did. It's Hebrews. It's Hebrews. Phew. This is my, my ripcord right here. Hebrews chapter five. Um, this is what the author of Hebrews says, for when the time you ought to be teachers, you know, teachers of the word, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe but strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Man, this, there's so much here. How, how are you matured? By using the stuff that you get. When you're learning from scripture and then taking it and using it and exercising that gift and start teaching and sharing with other people, you'll start to exercise that muscle. But some people don't do that. They just hear a sermon, oh, nice sermon, whatever, and they walk away. And they didn't really learn anything. And then, you know, a year or two or three later, they're like, oh yeah, what was that about? Something about the gospel and something about Jesus and the cross, what was that all? And, and they just continue to be kind of hovering in that immaturity, which the Bible says, that's like the nursing child who's still on the milk when you should be eating the ribeye steak. I love these food scriptures. It's a life verse for me right here. I, lo I love that. Um, <laughs> all the Portland vegans are kind of, talking about a ribeye. Um, sorry about that, but it's the Bible. Um, don't mess with me on food scriptures. You know, I, I know them all by heart. Uh, I like how Taco Bell is endorsed in the Bible. The Bible, Proverbs 30, verse eight says, it's good to eat food convenient for you. Um, Taco Bell is of the Lord, as it turns out. No, now I'm out of context, sorry. Better reel this back in. All that to say, um, there's an analogy of immaturity who's still breastfeeding when you should be eating you know, a steak. And sadly, I wonder if the church has, has lost that desire 
to grow and become more mature. That's part of the change. The need for change is woven throughout all the Bible. And I hope you understand that. So you got the need for change, the need for change. But what about the nature of the change that God wants to do? What, what is that like? Well, the Bible actually tells us, and it's kind of a cool thing. Um, do you know that change is inevitable, <clears throat> whether it's good or bad? You know, you're, you're gonna be changing whether you like it or not. Um, and the Bible sort of splits it out. There's conformity and there's transformation. Which one are you gonna do? You're gonna change to conform or you're gonna change and be transformed. And you know, Romans chapter 12, verse two. And it says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, conformity, oh, it's the natural flow of things to become more and more conformed. That's the way, if you don't, if you don't do anything, if you just let your life go, you're gonna conform. That, that's the, the flow, the, the, the gravity, if you would, of morality, conformity. It's been said, you know, any dead fish can go with the flow. But the Lord, the Lord has called you and me to go upstream. He wants us to, to swim against that flow. And how do we do that? You, you don't let yourself be conformed to this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is your mind renewed? Man, through prayer, through the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. These are the things the Lord says, I wanna renew your mind that you might prove that which is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. How do you do that? You're, you're transformed. Mark the word transformed in your notes because it's a great word here in the, in the Greek text. The word transformed, uh, I remember when I first heard this as a kid uh, and I knew what it meant. Uh, the Greek word metamorpho, uh, where we get our word metamorphosis. Um, and the reason I knew this, and if you're old enough here, you might remember this. Remember when the Incredible Hulk first came out? David Banner and you know Lou Frigno uh, gr painted green. Uh, we didn't have computer graphics, so they got this huge muscular guy and spray painted him green uh, to make him look like the Hulk. But um, but I remember the intro of the TV show weekly. I'd get you know and watch the Incredible Hulk. But I remember um, that the, the beginning of the show said, and David Banner was working in his lab when a startling metamorphosis occurred. Um, and, and then all of a sudden his pants rip and you know, he turns green. And um, do you ever notice his pants always ripped in the right places? But uh, like, like, I was like, that's really fortunate uh, that, that, that those held together uh, like that. But, uh, but I'm, I'm saying this, listen, um, that's what a metamorphosis is. The Greek word to transform from you know, the, the essential nature of something. At the very nature, question, you as a person, what's the essence of your nature, anybody? Huh? Bad. That's right. We, we were born with a sin nature, the Bible says. There's a bunch of names for this when it comes to sin nature. It's, it's called your flesh, your carnal part of you. It's the part of you that's called the old man. Remember, reckon the old man dead. Paul talked about that. That's that old part of you that wants to sin. And you were born with that, as it turns out. We were born in sin. We were born with a sin nature. So what you and I need is a startling metamorphosis to occur a transformation from the essential nature of you and your nature is that of sin, according to the Bible. So the transformation, when you become a Christian, you don't go with the flow because the natural flow is conformed to this world, which is going more and more towards sin. But the Lord says, no, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, this, this nature of change, this 
you know, transformation versus being conformed. I have to say, I'm, I'm saddened to see how the church in the world today, we've become more and more conformed and less and less transformed, I have to say. Um, you know, it's, it's not just me noticing this, but maybe some of you have seen it too. How heartbreaking has this past year and a half, two years been watching churches that were once solid theologically sticking to teaching the Bible. In this last year and a half, they, they moved from the word to conforming to the, the pressures of this world. Um, you know, I, I brought it out when it first came out, when Black Lives Matter first came out, it was like, oh, Black Lives Matter, Blackout Tuesday, and Christians blacking out their Instagram and, and people, you know, Black Lives Matter. Well, it's such a false dilemma. Of course, black lives do matter. There's no question about that. But it's not that sentence that matters, it's the organization that's the problem. I remember when I first brought that out, some young people came, but Brett, that's not what Black Lives Matter stands for. You know, the, and I, I taught that, that prophecy update that particular time and I was saying, yeah, they wanna dis, destroy the nuclear family. Um, they, they want, they're, they're, they're basically Marxists, that's anti-Christian, anti-Jesus. Um, and they're LGBTQ, uh, they're neck deep in this whole you know, gay and lesbian agenda and, and, and what have you. And it's, it's just not really what the Bible teaches. And, and I was just saying, churches should not be jumping on board with this. And at that time, people got all mad and up in a tizzy, oh, you know, and I even was called a racist and a homophobe and a bigot. Um, it's funny how people go to calling names, uh, but they don't, they don't wanna search it out and say, is that true? But one of the kids came a week later, said, I looked at their website and sure enough, they wanna destruct, uh, what's the word they use? Not destruct, um, dismantle the nuclear family. They're not into a mother and a father uh, and children. They're, they're into, you know, it takes more of a village. Socialism really is what it is. And, and they, were, they were shocked. They didn't realize what they were supporting online was about as anti-biblical and anti-God as it gets. Meanwhile, the Black Lives Matter thing is only making racism and issues worse in the world. But the Bible, you show me a transformed Christian who's been transformed, man, I love how simple the Bible is. One of the churches locally here put on their front of their webpage, you know, white fragility, recommended reading, which is so sad. I would put the Bible on my webpage and say, recommended reading right here. This is a good one. White fragility, total waste of time. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it's true. Um, you know, it's, it's sad because that, that church that was once a solid Bible teaching church, maybe it still is, except for they got, off, they got off course on this one and they messed up. And now like 30% of their congregation is there and the rest are gone. It's because I think Christians are realizing, wait a minute, that's more conforming to the worldview that is godless. What the church needs to do is stop being conformed to this world. You know, we do it in the name of trying to be relevant, we even do, we, we conform to the world trying to be deemed as loving. You know, it, it's an amazing thing uh, what, we, what we think we have to conform to because of what, what's done in the name of love. Um, I think we have to be careful because lying is not love. We have to be careful about that. You know, the nature of the change that God wants to do is a metamorphosis. And I love that the Bible gives us everything we need for that change. Racism would be gone, which it needs to be gone. It'd be gone if people just read their Bibles and, and do what the Bible says, let the Lord transform them. You know, uh, white fragility, when you read the book, it, it, you gotta have a rocket science. It's dizzying of 
am I a racist? Well, I was born with white skin, so I must be a racist. In fact, I'm a, I must be a white supremacist because I was born with, you know, and, and critical race theory has got all this stuff buzzing and, and white people are freaked out. What a, oh, I'm a racist. But, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing. The Bible just is way more simple than that. You don't have to try to, you know, what you have to do is just like for simple, this is a good one, good advice from the Bible. Love one another. Man, if we did that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> If we did that, we'd all be good. If we would just love one, I love another simple one, three words, prefer one another. Like that's, that's a great, the idea of preferring one another is to say to put other people ahead of yourself. Um, this is what the Bible teaches. The world is making it into this big, you know, matrix of complex racism and, and all this stuff. And, and the Lord just says, man, love one another. Do good to those that persecute you. Love your enemies. Like, like just simple powerful truth that if Christians would just be transformed by the Lord, uh, all the problems of this world would start to go by the wayside. Um, the church is, uh, not just the church, but how about you individually? Have you let the world kind of conform you more into the world's image or are you being transformed? And the more you hear these truths, oh, just come as you are and be who you are and all that. No, come and be changed. Go in the door one way and go out the door in another way. That's what we wanna do. That's the goal. So you've got this narration of change. What's that? The narration of change, keeping my ends going. Well, all through the Bible, point number three here, you, you know, number one, you got the need for change. You have the nature of the change, it's transfer, transformation, metamorphosis, but you have the narration of change in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, the Bible is a story of changed lives and changed people. And we could talk for weeks about this. Because uh, the Bible's all about that. I mean, name a person in the Bible and see how God changes them. It's, it's an amazing story. But let me point out some of the fun ones that I think touch on this in a way that I think is important for us. Um, there was a transformation in Moses that's kind of cool. Uh, did anybody see the Cecil B. DeMille's uh, Ten Commandments? Uh, what was that, 1952? Uh, you young people that haven't seen it, Got it. You got to watch this old movie. They killed it. Uh, even the, you know, they didn't have computer graphic effects and stuff, but they killed it. Uh, it's an amazing show, but um, but it's biblically sound too. I mean, there's, there's some cool stuff about this, but but one of the things they do with Moses is he's this buff young guy. The first 40 years of his life in Egypt, uh, mean and lean and tan. He was the Egyptian dude. Walked like an Egyptian. Talked like an Egyptian. It was great, but that was the first 40 years. The first 40 years of his life, he became somebody. But then he was, you know, sent out to the backside of the desert there in the wilderness of Midian. And he became a shepherd for the next 40 years. First 40 years becoming somebody, the next 40 years becoming nobody. Then the movie, he sees the burning bush and he goes up and he walks up there to go see it and he stands in front of the burning bush. But when he comes down the mountain, like this is funny, Charlton Heston, I love him for his overacting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like Charles Nesson, I just watch it just to hear him say bondage over and over again. He says the word, he says, get my people out of bondage. Like the way he says it, you know, it's just like bondage, it's great. But when he comes down the mountain, suddenly his hair's all back, like white, and his face is glowing. And they did a great job with this because that's kind of what happened. Um, I say kind of because actually the story in Exodus 34 where that really started happening was after Moses got the 10 commandments, he comes down the mountain because the children were busting a move around the golden calf. 
And I like to joke around, you know, Moses, who was the most wicked man in the Bible? Moses, he broke all the 10 commandments at one time. <clears throat> That's what Moses did, he broke them. So he had to go up and get a, a, a Xerox, you know, of the, of the next, yeah, second round. He goes up onto the mountain for a second set of 10 commandments. But when he comes down, um, the people are totally freaked out. Um, why are they freaked out? Well, let me just read to you from Exodus. This is great, Exodus 34. It says that Moses, uh, came, it came to pass when he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, he did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with the Lord. And then he was talking with the people. And it says, and when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses and behold, behold the skin of his face shone that they were afraid to come near to him. <laughs> they're all like, ah, Moses is glowing. Let's get out of here. Like they're, they're totally freaked out by glowing Moses. Um, Charlton Heston, they did this perfectly when he was, when, when he was walking around, he didn't like look at the, he, he'd walk and he's, his wife would, he's, and he'd turn. Like it was weird, it's a little spacey. But, but what happened? Moses was glowing because he was in the presence of God. Check this out, it goes on and says, and then Moses, when he had done speaking with the people, he, he says he put a veil on his face. Now, some of you are picturing tulle and this beautiful wedding veil that Moses put on. No, it was a bag. He put a bag over his head. That's, that's the literal word in the Hebrew text. He took a bag and put it on his head because everybody was so freaked out by his glowing head that he puts a bag over his head. But this is great. Then when Moses went in before the Lord, that is, you know, to the tabernacle eventually, he, he would take the veil off and talk to the Lord and then when he would come out, he'd put the bag back on when he'd talk to the children of Israel. And Exodus 34 leaves you thinking, oh, that was polite of Moses to not freak people out with his glowing face. But actually there's a funny little scripture that Paul the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why Moses actually put the bag on his head in 2 Corinthians 3.13. The King James puts it in a way it's kind of hard to figure it out. It says that um, Moses, you know, put a veil over his face, children of Israel, so they could not steadfastly look at the end of that which is abolished. Uh, what is that? Well, it means this. In fact, the NIV says, to keep the Israelites from gazing at him while his radiance was fading away. Moses didn't want the people to see that he was stopping, he was, he was going dim. He needed to be recharged. So what did Moses do? He'd go back into the tabernacle and get recharged, just like your iPhone. You know, you're like the battery's getting low, Moses, time to go in, okay. And then they come up, glowing like a light bulb. Um, now, the reason I love this story as it's the narration of the Bible, this is what God wants to do for you. Jesus said, you are the lights of the world. First he said, I am the light of the world. But when you hang out with Jesus, as it turns out, you start to, 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 to shine the light of Christ. This is all throughout the Bible. Uh, check out Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness like in Portland, Sorry, I added that, sorry. Um, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife or envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Um, operative words here for you know, this, this part of the light, it says that what we're supposed to do is put off the pajamas, the night clothes, the day is at hand, it's time to get dressed. 
So cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I love that it's not just light. There's something, there's a protective quality to putting on the light of Christ. Armor is what it's called. And how do you do that? You, you put on the armor of light by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like? It's the same thing Moses did. He was transformed when he went into the presence of the Lord, he would start to glow. When he went out, he came out glowing. He went in one way and came out different. When you come to Athey Creek, do you come in one way and go out different? Or is it just another Sunday? Man, I'm glad Brett's finally done. Time to go do something fun. And, and do we come out unchanged? It's the giant erasers over the doors, you know, as you walk through, you're like, oh, that was a good sermon. As you walk through the door, oh, let's go to the river, man. It's a nice hot day. And just totally forget everything we talked about. No change, no transformation, not going out one, in one door and out the other, but just going out the same door. That's the idea that we're talking about here. I believe church is just like what Moses was doing. You're coming here with God's people, the body of Christ. We're hanging out with Christ. We're worshiping Jesus. We're studying the, the word of God, which in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The more we spend time in the word, it's like just being with Jesus and we're plugging in and we're recharging for the week ahead. That's what we're supposed to be doing, being transformed by being in God's presence. So you got your examples of Moses going in to be recharged um, and, and being light. What about in the New Testament? I love the story of John chapter 20. Same kind of thing where they spent time with Jesus. Just quickly, remember in John 20, there's the disciples totally freaked out, fearful. And by the way, that's a notion today that we celebrate. Have you noticed that we've started to celebrate fear? That's our new virtue in America. We're no longer the land of the free or the home of the brave. We're the land of the fearful. Be worried, lock down, be afraid, go in and cover up. And we're like, we're so freaked out. Um, but I, I think that's not really what the Lord wants for his people. He wants a bold, not fearful people. Um, but the disciples are totally afraid, shaken in their sandals because the Sanhedrin could kill them just the way they killed Jesus. So there they are, freaked out. And then suddenly Jesus, John chapter 20, bing, pops into the room and he breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Ghost. And suddenly after that story, you see a totally different group of disciples. They are no longer the guys shaking in their sandals, but they're charging the gates of hell, if you ask me. What do you mean, Brett? Well, if you fast forward just a couple pages from John 20, you read about right, right after that what happens in Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, Peter, James, and John, and the guys, they all get out of their little fearful room and they get out and start healing people and preaching and doing great things. And the Sanhedrin said, hey, what are these guys doing? And who's this guy that's healed? And by what name and by what authority did you heal this man? And the same guys that killed Jesus, they call Peter out on the carpet and say, what, by what authority do you do this? Well, as it turns out, Peter, no longer afraid, listen to his answer, just the boldness, check this out. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, the one that was healed, and by what means he's made whole, be it known to you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And this stone, Jesus, which was the set of knot of you builders, which has become the head of the cornerstone. 
Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you hear what Peter's saying? He's giving them the gospel and saying, you guys killed the Messiah. You guys killed the one that healed who's still alive and he's risen and he healed this guy that's standing before you right now. That was Jesus, the one you guys crucified. Like that's just bold. So what do these rulers do? Are they, are they kind of freaked out? Well, check it out. I'll, I'll read you. It says in verse 13 of, the, of chapter four. Now, when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. <laughs> Their mouths were shut. Why? Now there's a nuance here that I think you kind of miss if you don't know a little bit of the history there. Did you know the people from Galilee had a very distinct accent to their, their speech that gave them away as Galileans and the people in Jerusalem looked down on the Galileans as total podunk hicks. Uh, you can look this up in history, it's the way it is. Do you remember when Peter uh, was accused there, hey, you're one of the followers of Jesus. And, and Peter's like, no, I wasn't, blankety blank. And then sons, your speech gives you a, you're a Galilean. Remember they said that? They knew that because of his accent. Well, what's that accent like? Well, I liken it to, have you ever seen uh, crocodile hunters or any of those people down in the deep south? Shoot him, cooter, tell you what, hurt near, get that, that. Like, like that's the way the Galileans talked, if you would. They had sort of this perception of being not so bright. So here's this Galilean speaking boldly to these brainiac Sanhedrin schooled academics. And they're marveling at his boldness because they say, man, this guy is an unlearned and totally ignorant man. But they took knowledge of him that he had been with Jesus. There was a heft, there was a weightiness to this old fisherman from, you know, from, from Galilee that when he spoke, they, they couldn't deny there was an authority there and they really couldn't deny that the guy was healed that they knew was impotent his whole life. What was it that changed in Peter? The same thing that was changed in Moses. He had spent time with the Lord, so his face glowed. Peter and James and John spent time with the Lord Jesus, and man, they became men of authority. They were transformed, and there was nothing that these academics could say against them. The narration of change in the Bible just goes on and on. What about the change of Saul to Paul the apostle? Here's a guy who's persecuting the church, throwing Christians in jail, hunting them down, and suddenly he's now a Christian. You know, it's an amazing thing when you read Acts chapter nine, where Paul the apostle, who's now a Christian, walks into town and says, I'm a Christian now, and all the Christians are like, yeah, right. We really believe you, Paul, Saul. Um, it took a while for the church to accept Paul. Do you remember that? Like when you read the, the narrative there in Acts 9, they were like, yeah, we don't believe, <laughs> we don't believe this guy's saved. I have a friend who was like that in high school. I went to this um, mechanical drawing class taught by Mr. Booz. Funny name, because he literally had a thing of whiskey in his drawer. Uh, I'm not kidding you. This is back in the 80s when teachers did stuff like this. Um, but, um, but I remember this class, I remember I was a freshman and I was taking this mechanical drawing class and I remember thinking, man, this is like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. 
the classroom was full of guys talking about things they shouldn't be talking about and the, the teacher was there up in the front. And it was, just, it was just like a little weird for me as a Christian kid. But this one guy who was kind of the leader of the class, he was this one, like, he was like a junior and, and I was a freshman, but I remember watching him you know, talk and he'd talk about stuff and I was just like, oh man, this, like, he's the worst of the worst kind of thing. And I remember thinking that's about as unsaved of a person as I've ever known. Well, years later, I'm ministering as an assistant pastor at a church and these guys say, hey, your friend from high school. And they gave me his name and I was like, uh, yeah, he, he's here. And they're like, yeah, he's a Christian. He's gonna be leading worship this morning. I'm like, oh, you got the wrong guy. Uh, that's not, no, 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 no. That's never, no. And I went out and I couldn't believe my eyes. It took me like three or four years to believe that he was really saved. Seriously, I know that sounds very you know, legalistic, but, but not only was he saved, he was radically saved and changed and transformed and to this day he's a pastor of a large church. Who would have thought that? That's what the Lord does. He does a work of transformation. Oh, if I could only just tell you, that's one of the benefits of having so many years of being a Christian in church and watching the Lord change lives. You know, I, I've seen the Lord change. One guy was a, a big grouchy guy who, who was just kind of tough as nails. He actually played for the Los Angeles Rams before the NFL existed. Um, and, and then he, he, he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam and they literally tied this man up with barbed wire. They tied him up with barbed wire. And he was in this like, prison bamboo thing in the jungle for a long, long time. But he walked around church and he was just like, but man, when he got saved, suddenly this big grouchy guy, he still kind of looked grouchy and he still had the scars of barbed wire on his arms and he'd walk around the church, but then he'd just talk and you realize, this is like the most loving, big, uh, kind-hearted man you ever did see. And it was, it was the Lord who did a work of transformation. And when, when Bob went to heaven, we were all bummed out because he was a real joy in our, in our congregation at that time. Someday I look forward to meeting Bob again. He was a guy the Lord changed and transformed in a radical, radical way. And there's some of you guys I see in here, I know the Lord's changed and saved some of you guys and done some radical things. You know, we have, we have people at Eighth Creek that were prostitutes here in Portland and the Lord saved them. And we had a guy who was born for one purpose. His mother was a factory in Columbia um, uh, to, she would literally have babies just to uh, have soldiers for the Columbia drug cartel. This guy was born to work for the drug cartel. They raised him to be a good drug guy. They moved him to Los Angeles and then they moved him to Portland uh, being sort of the guy that was sort of the contact for all these drug you know, connections. And he ends up stumbling into Athey Creek and becomes a Christian. I see this guy walking, he's got this huge gold chain and he's kind of like, yeah, you know, what's going on? You know, it was like total drug, like, like think of a drug cartel movie, that's who was sitting in the front row. And the guy got saved and he got baptized and he turned himself into the authorities and he had to do the witness protection program. Like, like, but this guy radically changed. He knew nothing but, you know, how to be a good drug cartel soldier. That's all he knew until he met Jesus. The Lord didn't save us to keep us the way we are. The narration of the Bible tells us all about change. The Lord wants to change and transform. Now, as I conclude and, and wrap this up a little bit, let me just say this. You can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. The Lord is patient and long-suffering and he wants to change you and I think he wants to change you right now. He wants this service to be a changing part of your life and your program. The question is, are you receptive to that? He'll wait. 
He's not gonna force change upon you. But man, be like the psalmist who said, oh Lord, change, you know, change me. Search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in your way everlasting. Like to be open to change and say, Lord, do a work in my life. We, I am your workmanship. You know, some people change when they see the light. Other people change when they feel the heat. And it's gonna happen. Some of you know this because some of you in this room, you waited until you felt the heat and then you changed. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't recommend that way. I really wouldn't. I do have to say, you know, on this issue of, of change and what have you, as it turns out, too many times, you know, we see people that are more willing to change out where they live, change out who they're married to. They're willing to change out, you know, their, um, their workplace. They'll even change out friends before they're willing to change themselves. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know people that just go through friends, like, like go through tubes of toothpaste? Oh, you're our friends, have you over for dinner? And oh, your friends, 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 and all that. They said something that set you off. Oh, you're not our friends anymore. We banish you to anti-friendship. And then they find another unsuspecting friend and they become friends. How many of you guys know somebody like that that just goes through friends like there's no tomorrow? Yeah, <laughs> it's a thing. And if you're one that didn't raise your hand, you just might be that friend. I'm just, just kidding, just, just kidding. No, no, I'm just saying, be careful Christians because we're so unwilling to change. Sometimes we're the last one to see it, but we're the one that needs to change. You don't need to change out your wife. You need to change. You don't need to change out your job. You need to change that the Lord can use you in that job. Like so many times we change everything else, but we're unwilling to change ourselves. And the Lord says, I, I can fix that. I can change that. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, to be ready to go in the door one way, but then go out the door another way. When you enter into your morning devotions to go in one way and go out the other way. When you read your Bible one way, come out the other way. That's this lesson we learn from the millennial temple. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, I do pray for this, your church. Lord, that we, your people, would just be really sensitive to your promptings, your leadings. Help us, Lord, not to be stubborn. We admit our proclivity to to want to be the way we are and stay locked in. Um, some of us, Lord, are not only opposed to change, but we, we fear change. But Lord, I pray that we would let you do whatever it is you want to do. We know your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. And the changes you want to make in our lives, we know it only results in good and great things. So, your will be done in our lives. Change us, change our hearts, change our minds. Lord, equip us and ready us for eternal life with you in heaven. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>